0: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks, I'm Mark Bumgarden, Managing Editor of Crosscut, and this week I've been thinking about political influence, in particular how elected leaders attempt to do big things in tough situations against unlikely odds. There's a lot out there right now suggesting that our government just isn't working, at least not for all of us. America's three-headed megacrisis of a pandemic, the economic fallout, and abuses of power by police have all highlighted the aspects of our society that breed huge disparities and leave a large swath of Americans at a distinct disadvantage. In a representative democracy like the United States, we expect our lawmakers to act to fix the problems we face, to give all Americans a path toward life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But in a moment like this, the difference between action and inaction can be the difference between life and mass death. Legislating is not an easy job. Knowing what to do is half the battle, and it can be confusing and difficult to weigh the dangers of a pandemic against the health impacts of an economic recession, or the desire for public safety in the need for civil rights. But the other half of the battle, getting the job done, has become just as tough. This week, I spoke with U.S. Senator Patty Murray about legislating in a time of deep crisis and hyperpartisanship. We talked about her attempts to shore up the nation's schools during the pandemic and to assure the delivery of a vaccine to all Americans, and the obstacles she faces. Turns out, it's complicated. Then later, I check in with David Crowman about the battle at Seattle City Hall over the future of the city's police force and a reimagining of public safety. Okay, on with the show. I'm here now with Senator Patty Murray. Senator Murray has represented Washington State since 1993 and holds a number of leadership roles in the U.S. Senate. Lately, she's been making headlines for her attempts to influence the federal response to the coronavirus crisis. Senator Murray, welcome to Crosscut Talks.
1: Well, it's great to talk with you today.
0: Wonderful to have you. Um, I want to start by talking about schools. Right now, there's a debate taking place over whether and how to reopen our schools. And this is something that affects so many families. I'm wondering what that conversation looks like in your family.
1: Oh, it's personal to me. Every family member I have, and I have a lot of brothers and sisters, and they all have kids who have kids, and we, you know, so this is the number one conversation that we have when we talk to each other is our school's gonna open? What's gonna happen? What's it gonna look like? How am I gonna be if they're, my kids are home? How am I gonna teach them and do my job at the same time again? it's this is impossible, what's happening? There isn't any parent I know who isn't saying what's going to happen to my kids in the fall.
0: So nationally, we're seeing a sharp rise in coronavirus cases, and now deaths are beginning to increase as well. Uh, But not every state is the same. And, And Washington state is kind of a median state, right? We're not the worst case scenario, but we're not the best. And I know that you've been in conversation with epidemiologists, doctors, other experts, Do you think that this state is on course to resume schooling safely?
1: Boy, I think that is something that every one of us have to listen to local public health experts. We need to track what is happening with coronavirus. And most importantly, the schools that have to make this decision about what they're going to do need to know that they have the capability to do it safely. Do they have the PPE for their teachers, for their staff? Do they have the ability to separate kids? Do they have the ability to make the kinds of decisions that they have to make with staff? Some of them who are elderly or medically compromised that could be in worse shape if they were to get the virus. And they have kids who are medically compromised. It's a very difficult and challenging decision and one that all of us should be asking, not get your school kids back in school, as I hear the president saying, but... How do we do it safely? What's the best way to educate our kids while we are in the middle of a pandemic?
0: So, late last month, you introduced the Coronavirus Child Care and Education Relief Act, uh, which calls for $430 billion to shore up the nation's schools and childcare providers to get the schools in a place where they can open safely. And I, I'm just curious, does this bill have any chance of passing?
1: Well, I feel very passionately that if we that the goal that all of us have, which is to make sure that our kids get a good education, that they are safe, that they get whether what they need, whether they're in childcare, whether they are in K twelve, or whether they're going to college, it's imperative that our nation step up. That's exactly why I introduced this legislation. We cannot look at education as we did a year and a half ago. We have to look at it as a public health. Um, situation that we need to make sure our kids and our faculty and our staff and everyone who's there is safe and healthy so we don't spread the virus and so we don't continue to have to deal uh, personally with it or economically with it. So we have to do this right and it is not free, cheap, easy to do it. We need to make sure we've got the resources for personal protection equipment, for testing, for the capability to make sure that kids are spaced in a way they've never had to be before, that we make sure that we protect our faculty, our staff members, the custodians, that we are sanitizing. And in order to do that, we need to step up as a nation to make sure we don't lose our kids and our education and the future of this country at the same time as we're dealing with this pandemic. It is a federal responsibility. I'm gonna fight for it.
0: Has the atmosphere in Washington changed as the pandemic has worsened this summer? We're seeing some Republicans embrace some public health recommendations that they didn't in the past. Is that translating to more cooperation while legislating? That's
1: that's Hard to to say. I I am one who believes when there is a common cause, we can all work past our political differences and find a way to move things forward. Certainly a pandemic of this size that has just impacted every corner of our country and literally almost every community is one that should bring us together. I've been in the Senate a long time. I have seen that happen when it comes to Um, 9-11. I've seen it happen when our economy collapsed. I've seen it at other really grave moments in our history, and this one I think is unparalleled in terms of how we need to to deal with this today. And I'm hoping as more and more of all members uh, of our caucus begin to see this in reality in their own homes, uh, in their own states, in their own communities, in their own schools, in their own businesses, Um, that they recognize that we all need to step up to this. Does it mean I'm going to get everything I'm putting on the table? Of course not, you never do. But does it mean we can move the ball forward and have a shared conversation and find some common ground to move it forward? I really hope so and I will tell you that the next three weeks will show us whether that can happen or not. Where I feel hope is that Mitch McConnell was saying just a few weeks ago we are not doing anything else. And now he is saying he's moved to he is introducing a package, having not talked to anybody but his own Republican colleagues next Tuesday that will begin the conversation. Uh, If he can move past that and recognize that, uh, you know, it has to take into account the needs that are far broader than just a group of senators, that good legislation always includes members of both parties to move it forward, uh, then we can get a deal done. And that will come. If he believes this problem is real, I think the difference I would say between now and a few months ago is more and more people are recognizing this is not a hoax. It is real. It is impacting people. It is dangerous. It is hurting the health care of our country. It's hurting individuals, families. It's hurting our economy. And we need to step up.
0: All right. So. Let's get into the bill just a little bit. You know, I know that one of the things that you said that you really wanted to talk about in this conversation is Mm childcare. And um, it's a big part of the Relief Act. There's $50 billion uh, in here towards shoring up childcare providers. Can you lay out why childcare is so important to you in this effort?
1: I have recognized for a long time that childcare is a hidden problem in our country. Every parent who goes to work worries about if their child is safe, if they're getting taken care of, how they're going to deal with a child who's sick and they have to go to work every day. It's just this hidden reality that nobody wants to talk about, mostly because people don't want to go to work and say it's a problem or they fear for their job, that, that it's a problem. So we need to bring it out in the public. And interestingly, this pandemic has brought it out in the public big time because A number of our daycare providers had to shut down during this pandemic. They weren't able to care for kids, uh, their own staff. uh, They had to deal with that. They didn't have the cleaning supplies. They couldn't sanitize. They didn't know what the regulations were. And now, as people are talking about getting the economy back opening, they've got to get families to come back that had pulled their kids out of child care. And the only way they can do it is by having it be safe, and reliable and effective and just like with k-12 and other schools they have to have the sanitation they have to have the safe distancing hard to do with a two-year-old they have to have the staff that is there and prepared and they need to do the kinds of things they've never had to do i mean if you have a daycare or a child care where kids are playing with trucks you've got to sanitize it these are things they're all having to think about and it's a cost to it So I'm focused on this because if we want our economy to get back on track, we need childcare that parents can leave their kids in and know they are safe and well cared for. And I also know that if we don't do it correctly, we're going to impact our economy because people will not be able to go back to work. We cannot be a productive country and we will leave behind our most precious asset, which is our young kids and their capability for the future.
0: So is there an aspect of this that you hear a lot of conversation around the crisis as opportunity, that there is an opportunity to fix some societal ills that were already in place, but that um, have been exacerbated by the crisis? So is a part of what you're doing here trying to, to really set a new course for how we approach um, things like childcare? Uh, and education uh, deal with disparities that existed prior to the crisis?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, this has been a problem for a very long time, but this pandemic has really highlighted the need for childcare. It also shows the disparity, um, both because the COVID virus has, um, has had disparate reactions in different communities, communities of color, low-income communities, frontline workers, who all need childcare and uh, we need them working. Um, so the disparities are real. Um, the access is real. The lack of access for minority communities is real. Um, this has just highlighted every part of the childcare system that we have today and how we need to make sure we are talking about it in the future as part of our economy, how we do this right so we can all benefit from it and we can all be a better, productive country
0: so you you talk about uh racial disparities when you're talking about this legislation, in particular in education in healthcare, as you just said. I was wondering I've been thinking about how this relates to the other the other big story of the moment, which is uh the the anti racism movement and in particular uh the conversation around policing mm-hmm. and uh and uh defund the police and you know. The idea there is to disinvest from policing and invest more in social services like early childhood education, housing, health care, um, with this idea that if you If you address the problem upstream then you don't need to have the resources downstream which Mm -hmm. would be the criminal justice system right right and i wonder if you see value in that idea and how that fits into your overall kind of thinking around these issues of disparity when it comes to education and and health
1: oh it's such a, a huge part of it i spent a great deal of time talking to community leaders in our minority community, in our black community in particular, since uh, the whole discussion uh, started several, what, it's been a month now. And the thing that they bring up constantly is, yes, this is about the issue of policing, but what we need to talk about is systemic racism across all of what we do in this country, that young black kids don't get the same access in education. Healthcare, huge disparity um, between minorities and whites in access to healthcare, which is an incredibly important part of our families' lives. And we're seeing it now with the COVID crisis itself, where um, members of our minority community are getting uh, the COVID virus in larger numbers, where they do not have healthcare as part of their. Um, family support system, so they're not getting the care they need. They're not getting access to testing. You know, it's complex, all of that. Um. So yes, the the conversations run run together. Um. Right now, in terms of uh, what we need to do to make sure we are dealing with systemic racism in our country, so that we come out of this in a better place. And yes, that will make a difference in terms of policing and cost of policing in the future. There is no doubt about it
0: so you know in seattle here we have a city council who is um uh really pushing forward with the idea of of drawing down the amount um spent on policing investing it in these um, social services that you're talking about and, you know, I know that you have something to say about how the Democratic Party approaches its, um, its Senate races this fall. And I, I wonder, do you feel like there's opportunity in, in talking about defund the police and really defining it um, and that it's not simply about defunding the police? Or do you think that defund the police is really something that um, that the party should should stay away from?
1: It's pretty clear that, well, we all want police there to handle crimes. If our house is being robbed, we want somebody to respond, uh, obviously. But oftentimes, police are pulled into situations that they don't need to be involved in. Uh, it may be a mental health professional. It may be a social worker. We need to make sure that families have the support systems in place um, so that they can Deal with what we need to today. Everybody wants a job. Everybody wants health care. Everybody wants their kids in a good school. And if we do that across the board for all races, we will be better off in the future. It's not just to fund the police. We don't want police. It is really about what we should be doing structurally in our country to assure that people are getting the support they need from the right people so that we don't end up in the situations that we have seen.
0: So you've been openly at odds with the Trump administration. You just spoke about it uh, uh, a few minutes ago. And last month, you, uh, along with Minority Leader Schumer, wrote a letter to the Department of Health and Human Services accusing the agency of holding on to $8 billion of the money that was allocated for testing and contact tracing. And the HHS responded by saying it wasn't given direction and how to spend this money. But I wonder what has happened since then? Is the money being spent now? Was that letter successful?
1: (laughs) Well, the letter was successful in helping everyone understand that one of the reasons that we have not um, been able to meet our goals in testing is that this administration doesn't have a plan to do it effectively and is not spending correctly the money that they were given because they they um, were not meeting the needs that we have. You know, this goes way back for me. Um, back in February, early February, when no one in Washington, D.C. was recognizing what was coming at them, I was yelling about the fact that I had people here in Washington State where we saw many of the first cases who were telling me personally, I think I'm really sick. I can't get a test. I've called my doctor. I've called the public health people. No one has them. And I've been raising this hue and cry ever since and have been met at the Trump administration by this, it's going to go away. Everything's going to be okay. It's not as bad as you think. It's this horrible ignorance of the fact that we're in a pandemic. And here we find ourselves, months later now, feels like forever, but it's been months later and we're back at the same spot where people today across the country, where we are seeing increasing numbers, can't get access to a test, cannot get the healthcare they need. Uh, you know, it's a, this administration has failed to plan for where we are now because they've been dismissive of the virus since its start. And it has left people without the tools they need To be able to stop the spread of this virus.
0: So, at the same time you wrote that letter, Trump said that he felt we were doing too much testing. There were differing accounts of whether it was a joke. Do you believe that the administration has been intentionally slow walking testing?
1: Uh, I would. I would be probably surprised if I thought they were not. It just seems to me that they don't want people to know the number of people that are impacted because somehow they don't have to step up as much as we think they all need to do. I think it's, is what is the cause of their doing that? Do they not want to recognize it? Do they want to wish it away? I, I don't know. You don't wish a pandemic away and you don't make good decisions about how we can make sure that our health system is ready or our economy is ready for what we are in the middle of, which is a pandemic the likes that we have not seen.
0: So you also recently authored a white paper just this past week, actually, and you're calling for $25 billion to assure that if and when a vaccine is developed, that it's made available to all, that there's universal access and distribution. And I I wanna read just a passage from the introduction. It says, Unfortunately, the US response to COVID-19 so far has been plagued by the Trump administration's track record of missteps and prioritization of politics over public health. When you're developing a strategy, for introducing an idea like this, and you're trying to get it enacted, it is clearly from everything that you're telling me, this is a national emergency. We need to be uh, on top of this. We need to be spending this money to make sure that um, that we have all of this access. This is something that needs to happen. So it. It occurs to me that the strategy in how you make deals, how you move this forward, is so important. And I was just struck at kind of the combative approach with this white paper. And and I was wondering if, you know, you think that that is the most effective way to assure that all Americans have access to the vaccine? And... And how you arrived at sort of what the strategy is for trying to push these issues forward at this point.
1: Well, the reason that I have put out this report on vaccines is because of my frustration that we didn't get testing right in this country for a variety of reasons and still don't today. And testing is important. It is a tool to tell you in your community what decisions you need to make schools reopening, businesses reopening, what your healthcare system needs to be ready to be prepared. But we all know that this virus most likely will not go away until we have a vaccine that is readily available. So my goal here is to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes. And I recognize that because this administration never put out a plan on testing or took it seriously, that it has to come from us. And I took it on and wrote a plan and said, here's what I believe we need to do to make sure we not just have a vaccine, but that it is readily available, that it is effective, that it is safe and that it is available widely to all communities so we don't run into the same problems that we have today. In putting that out, I now have a number of people who are raising that up and saying, here is what we need to do. And I recognize it has to come from the administration. It has to be funded by Congress, but boy, we've gotta be thinking about it now. We can't do it when a vaccine is all of a sudden available in December or a year from now. We need to know, knowledge is everything, Community needs to know. We need to have transparency. Public needs to know who is going to have access. How will they have access? How will it be paid for? Is it safe? Is it effective? And how are we going to make sure the entire supply chain that is needed to distribute it is in place? That starts now.
0: So as you said, a vaccine at the earliest would come in December, early 2021. You know, there's a big event that happens before that, and that is the election in November. So I'm just kind of curious about if you are planning two different trajectories for how you approach your job for the next year, right? One is if Trump is voted out and um, maybe a- and the Democrats take a larger share of the Senate, maybe a majority, and then the other one is if Trump remains in office and the Republican majority stays. Um, What's at stake here, and, uh, and how do you navigate how you are approaching the, the, this unknown future?
1: Right now, critically, we need to be doing things in this country for people. We're not going to wait for six months or a year. That includes helping to make sure a vaccine is developed safely and effectively. There's a plan to put it in place. How is it going to be manufactured? How is it going to be distributed? We need to have that in place now. The administration um, has not yet done that transparently or publicly, so I'm laying out what my vision is for that. And then we'll have an election. And by the way, we all should recognize we all want a vaccine like tomorrow, but this is not easy to do. Um, We do not know how effective it is. We do not know how available it'll be. Uh, And we don't know um, whether it's when they first do testing, can pregnant women take it? Can people with comorbidity, um, healthcare issues take it? Can young children take it? Those are all questions that take a great deal of time. So no one should expect that everyone's gonna be able to be vaccinated shortly after this election. That is unrealistic. So we have to think longer term about being prepared for this pandemic and how we make sure that a vaccine is put in place as quickly, efficiently, and effectively as we can. So that includes planning now, it includes thinking about next year. I hope that my plan is then available for a Biden administration to start to put in place immediately, and I'm hoping they're thinking about that now.
0: Okay, I've, I've got one last question for you, Senator. Um, and it's really just about how Many Americans feel frustrated and fatigued and believe that the government has squandered their sacrifice of the last few months. I mean, you know, I hear this in my own life. I see it um, see it around me. Do you expect that they'll listen to the government if there is a large wave of cases this fall and winter and widespread shutdowns are recommended again? Has the federal government lost the trust of the American people, you think?
1: Well, I have that argument In my own head, I am worried that because things have been so challenging and difficult and political, um, are we losing trust of who we need to have trust in when a major issue like this affects all of us? And it's very worrisome. And I worry that there are some people who are using this pandemic and other things to try and drive that mistrust, to have people not trust government for political reasons. You know, I I really hope that all of us can recognize, and the pandemic is a way of showing us, that individually in a country, each one of us have to take measures to make sure um, that our families are okay. But we also need a larger presence collectively that we trust, whether it's information about vaccines or testing or numbers of COVID cases or whether a pandemic is real because without that trust, it's very hard to manage something like we are managing right now. How do we rebuild that? Man, it's it's hard. I try to do my part every day to speak honestly and truthfully, to do my job, to talk to as many community leaders, families, people, at every level to understand what they're hearing and what they believe so that I can use the words that I have, to use the policies that I have, to use my ability as a senator, to be able to reflect their words and to fight for them. And I'm hoping that all as the country, we will recognize that and come together. It's an important goal.
0: Well, Senator Murray, thank you so much for giving me a little bit of time today. I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: All right, thank you all. Stay healthy and well.
0: All right, so now we've come to the part of the show where I ask for your help. All of the journalism created by the Crosscut Newsroom, including this podcast, is free, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com/donate. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back. I've got David Croman here now. David has been tracking the city's efforts to rethink policing. And earlier this week, he reported on a plan put forth by the mayor to move duties from the police department to other agencies. So, David, can you tell us exactly what the mayor is proposing?
2: So she's proposing what essentially amounts to a kind of shuffling around. Um, So moving the 911 dispatch system out of... out of the oversight of the Seattle Police Department, um, moving the Office of Police Accountability, which is basically internal affairs. So, um, you know, uh, looks at complaints against officers and recommends discipline, moving that out of the Seattle Police Department and moving parking enforcement into the Transportation Department
0: okay and then what is the mayor saying is the catalyst for these cuts or or these reallocations i guess
2: you know i mean it, it's sort of an easy way in some ways to make what amounts to essentially a 56 million dollar cut to the seattle police department so it which is and you know that combined with the 20 million dollars she had already proposed um, that amounts to roughly a 20 percent cut to the seattle police department budget so on paper you're sort of, you know, getting a little bit closer to what protesters and activists have demanded. You, you know, it's it what those cuts, quote unquote cuts actually mean is sort of up for debate because it's not like these functions are going to go away and in fact the 911 dispatch system was already mostly civilian anyway. The Office for Police Accountability is a lot of sworn officers. So actually, I'm not entirely sure how she's even going to do that because that is, uh, they're going to have to take that up with the union, I think, or convince some sworn police officers to work in an office that's not actually part of the Seattle Police Department. So that's all to say that the details are sort of complicated and the easy wins are easy for a reason, um, you, you know, because I think the sort of effect of moving it out of the Seattle Police Department is really not going to be that great. So, It
0: confuses me a little bit because I just wonder, has Mayor Durkin stated a reason beyond the optics of cutting $56 million from the department for why you would move these particular uh, functions into other departments or agencies?
2: Not explicitly. Um, You know, there are probably good reasons to look at these systems. The 911 dispatch Mm. system has actually been under scrutiny for a while. The city has spent a lot of money on audits that don't end up seeing much publicity that have basically concluded it would be worth looking at reorganizing the system. You know, additionally, there's a lot of questions about um, whether or not an accountability office for police officers should live in the Seattle Police Department. But those questions, the fact that those were questions that existed before this Are kind of separate from this larger debate around defunding the police. I think people have been calling for reexaminations of those departments for a while now and would continue to call for reexamining those departments. But that in its own way is that sort of disconnected from the debate that we're having right now. So I think we need to kind of see how this progresses and see how this debate plays out a little bit more and kind of get more details around If the mayor is proposing sort of dramatic changes to how these these offices function as they're being moved out of the police department or whether or not it is, in fact, what you said, just sort of a um, easy way to on paper look like you were making big cuts to the Seattle Police Department.
0: Right. Um, So this is not happening in a vacuum, of course. We have a city council where a number of council members have voiced support for making even deeper cuts uh, what do we know about their plans?
2: Not very much. So, what we know and what has gotten headlines is that a quote veto-proof majority, so seven out of nine of the city council members, have expressed some support for cutting fifty percent of the Seattle Police Department's budget. But I, I think there's a lot of nuance in that that's probably being missed. You know, you take Councilmember Shama Sawant, who is consistently the you know most left-leaning. Council member among all nine, you know when she says cut fifty percent, she means it literally. She means um, mm-hmm. cut eighty five million dollars right now, which is fifty percent of the police department's budget for the rest of the year, and cut two hundred million dollars next year. And you know, there's not a lot of nuance to that answer. That's what she believes. But when you look right. at someone like Councilmember Andrew Lewis, who has said. He supports the goal of working toward cutting 50% of the Seattle Police Department. That's actually a very different answer. Supporting the goal of working towards that doesn't mean something short of 50% is necessarily a failure. It doesn't really put a timeline on it and sort of leaves room for more nuance. So we know that there is there are these headlines out there which suggest that the city council is ready tomorrow to cut 50% of the police department. but. We don't actually know if that's true or not, because they haven't really offered any proposals or any timelines for themselves. So it's a good headline in the sense that the, the Minneapolis uh, is going to tear down their police department was a good headline. Um, But also like Minneapolis, we haven't really seen the details of how that's going to be achieved or what inevitable nuances are going to emerge from that.
0: I guess it depends on what your uh, definition of a good headline is.
2: (laughs) Right. I mean, it got, you know, we, but when, when it, when it became clear and by become became clear when council members started tweeting their support that there was some momentum towards cutting 50 percent of the police department. You know, we saw national figure. Sean King tweeted about it and said, you know, right. breaking in all caps Um as and, you know, I've sensed that has happened. I've had conversations with people who don't sort of normally pay attention to these things, who are under the impression now that the city council has already voted to cut fifty percent of the police department, which is really quite a distance from what has actually happened. You know, voicing your sort of vague support for an idea is a long way from actually doing that thing. And you know, I right. I, I keep saying this, but you know, going back to what I was saying before about how I don't necessarily believe that the entire council is ready to cut fifty percent of the Seattle Police Department's budget tomorrow. Um, suddenly that quote veto proof majority gets a little weaker and gets a little hazier around the ed- edges. So if you you know if if it goes down to f- only 5 out of out of 9 of the council members want to cut 50% tomorrow, then that is not a veto proof majority and I think that's a right. realistic possibility that and I think we've already seen that. Some members of the council kind of um pushing back on what the mayor said saying no, 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 you're implying that we don't have some plan and we're not going to do this carefully. In fact, we are going to do this carefully. And so I think already we've seen some sort of attempt at nuancing that message. I I think we'll probably continue to move that direction because um, while it looks like it's sort of council v. mayor right now, if you sort of if you peel off even a couple of those council members and you hear from them that they want to work a little more closely with the mayor's office, then all of a sudden there's no choice because the mayor mm. can start vetoing things. And she said very clearly, if the council decides tomorrow to cut 50% of the police department, she would veto it. So we are at sort of the point when the council is sort of very much um, speaking f- with and on the and for sort of some of the more activist community that they've been speaking with while the mayor is now is staking out a fairly firm position for all the people in Seattle who, when they hear we're going to cut 50% of the police department, feel kind of nervous about that. And, um, it's actually kind of amazing that she is really the only person in city hall who's speaking to that, uh, group of people who I imagine, you know, we don't have polling, but who I imagine is a fairly sizable portion of Seattle who might feel a little bit nervous about the pace of what the city council is talking about.
0: Right. So what comes next? Where do we go from here?
2: Well, I mean, theoretically, so 2020 is is not good financially, and the city council has to figure that out. Um, police or no, because COVID-19 has forced that. They have to figure out how to close a $400 million budget gap this year. So for the positions they've staked out, the City Council, in order to achieve that, is going to have to kind of include some fairly substantial cuts and reorganizations to the Seattle Police Department as part of that effort. And they're gonna have to do that in a month, essentially, because come end of August, when they get back from their typical week or two-week vacation, they have to start writing the budget for next year. Um, So it's gonna have to move fairly quickly um, and it's going to be pretty intense, I think, for the next few weeks while they figure that out. Um, we'll have answers about what you know, what it means that they want to work towards the goal of cutting 50% in you know pretty quickly here, faster than we're used to for Seattle City Council.
0: Well, when they figure it out, we'll have you back on and you can tell <laughs> us what it means. Yeah. So uh, really appreciate you coming on the show, David. Uh, you're doing great work. Thanks for talking to us about it. Nice talking to you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to David and Senator Murray for joining me. This episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.